Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. We are studying the parable of the talents this morning, which is probably, I'm guessing, familiar for many of you. Uh, how, many, how many in this room grew up in a Christian home? Ish? Christian-ish? Any, anybody go to Awana's as a kid? There we go. Can you quote the whole Bible front to back? Still? <laughs> More or less. Significant portions. Yeah. Um, see, that wasn't me. And I didn't, I mean, I had like some Sunday school type programs from time to time when I was a kid. It was more like a thing for kids to do. I think it was like a, something to get us out of the house to. And, um, but definitely not an Awana's kind of thing. So a lot of these things still are, as I study scripture, it's, there's a lot of newness there for me. Uh, I find that it's most challenging for us a lot of times, not just what we don't know, but what we do know, or what we think we know. And so many times for us, from, coming from a Christian background, um, things are so close to us that we miss them. We're blind to them. And that's, uh, I think, similar to, many of you are probably familiar with the story of, of Saul, not, not King Saul, the Apostle Paul, in his, uh, you know, before his conversion. And uh, Paul was a man of extensive knowledge, right? And he meets Jesus on the road to Damascus. He's on his way to terrorize more Christians. And he meets Jesus, and uh, his blindness, the blindness of his heart becomes physically manifested, and he can't see. And then um, something like scales, scales, so I'm talking Texan now, scales, fall away, from, um, fall away from his eyes when he's prayed for. The ring a bell? You guys remember that story? What were those scales? What was it that blinded him? In some ways, it was really what he knew that blinded him, right? Or what he thought he knew. It wasn't just a lack of information. It was a misinterpretation of that information. So I want to just point that out to us up front. You know, as we're going through these parables, uh, these are oftentimes stories that we've heard again and again. And um, sometimes that's what creates our blindness. And we all are like Saul, have scales that need to fall away. And so I just want to throw that out to you and, and pose that to you. What are the scales? What are the scales on your eyes? What's too close to you? What do you know too well that needs to, needs to fall away? And that happens as we encounter the Word, as we encounter the Word in, in flesh, Jesus, uh, as we're challenged, as we exhort and disciple one another, and as we encounter Him um, in real tangible ways. So as we read this passage this morning, um, and as, as I go through this teaching, I don't think I'm going to be saying many things that are new. I don't think I'm going to be bringing new information or addressing stories probably that you haven't heard before. But I think what, what hopefully God can do as we look at this together is bring new meaning to what we thought we knew or what we already knew or make connections between things that we've never made before. So um, I'm going to read the, the parable of the talents from Matthew 25. This is 25, 14 through 30. And then we'll get going. Okay. For it will be, it will be, he starts off chapter 25 uh, 
In verse 1, he says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like dot, dot, dot. Okay, so verse 14, he's continuing and saying, it, the kingdom of heaven, will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. Uh, the, the parallel to this in Luke, Luke adds that uh, the master commanded them to, to put it to work. Matthew leaves that out, but we see that this man immediately went and made five talents more. Verse 17, so also he who had the two talents made two talents more, but he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. It's apparently a somewhat common practice at that time, hide valuables in the ground. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing the five talents more saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away, and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Whew. Let's take a moment to pray again. Lord, I pray that you will speak to us about the scales, not just over our eyes, but over our hearts. We need you. Let's take a moment, and each of us individually, I want to challenge you to just, just in a moment, I'm not talking about a long time here, just in a moment, let's uh, just consciously center our hearts upon the Lord and welcome his spirit to instruct us. Let's just take a moment and do that. All right, so I want to I just draw a big circle around this and look at the, the big, big picture background story. So starting all the way back, all the way back with Abraham, okay, all the way back. And then we're going to, we'll, we'll go big and then smaller and then smaller, okay? So think about some concentric circles. We'll kind of keep zooming in until we get to our lives here today. So long, long time ago, right, there's a man named Abram. And God speaks to him in, in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, and says, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to a land I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. 
I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God makes this covenant with Abraham. And we're told later it was because of Abraham's faith, right? That he was justified. God makes this covenant with him, and Abraham believes it. And he has some hiccups along the way. But he walks it out, and we see this, we see this come forth. And we're still seeing this come forth. You probably sang... Father Abraham, as many sons and daughters, uh, right? I am one of them, and so are you. How's that go? Bless his praise. No, 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 no. Yeah, I do remember that. So we, and we even say, like, we're, we're children of Abraham today, right? And this is the, this is the basis of identity for, for God's people, for the nation of Israel, is that they find their, um, their heritage in Abraham and their sons and daughters of Abraham. But God's promise to Abraham was that he would be blessed, but there's, a, there's a, an outward working attached to it, right? He's going to be blessed, why? Or with what result? To bless others, right? That's just, that's written into the deal. In you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. I will bless you and make your name great, so that, verse 2, you will be a blessing. This is the very foundation of, of God's chosen people, Israel, right? The very foundation is this covenant with Abraham that he will be blessed and the result will be that he will be a blessing. So let me follow that, okay? God, God chose Israel um, and from Abraham the, the, the nation is birthed forth. I remember a time when I was in Haiti uh, I don't know, like 10 years ago. Um, and I, I had I brought a soccer ball with me, okay? And I was hanging out with some neighborhood kids, and I really wanted to give these kids who were extremely poor this new soccer ball from, probably from Walmart, this shiny new soccer ball, right? How do you give a group of children who were very poor a shiny new soccer ball from Walmart? How do you do that? What, what kind of dilemma do you think I was facing there? <laughs> Who do you give it to, right? Because what, ha- what will probably happen? There's going to be some conflict over it, right? And also some resentment, probably. Why did you give it to him? But what's my, my motive in the beginning? I'm not saying that this is the, like any kind of a template for missionary work, okay? Don't, don't, don't get that. But um, this was my, like the dilemma that I felt was I want these kids to have this ball. How do I do that? It's a challenge, right? I need to entrust it to someone. And so I found one kid who seemed like to be uh, um, a little older and, and respected by the rest of his peers or the, the younger kids. And I, so I pulled him aside and I talked to him and said, hey, I want you to have this. But here's the deal. You've got to take care of it. You've got to take it home when you go home. You also have to bring it out when you come out, right? That's the deal. He's like, okay, okay. And so we talk for a little bit, and I give him the ball. Five minutes later, five minutes later, a crowd of kids runs back, and it's, I mean, they're, they're, it's like a small miniature riot. And they're angry because they don't have the ball anymore. Because some bigger kids came along and they told the kid that I'd given it to that they wanted it, and so he gave it to him. Like, dang it, I don't have any more soccer balls, right? I just had one. So 
I'm not saying that this is like a perfect allegory for the kingdom of God and God choosing Israel, but I think it, it reflects in some ways kind of the dilemma that we face when we want to entrust something to someone, and it needs to be stewarded by someone. And so when we talk about God choosing Israel, it's really not a, um, because of any merit on their, on their part, right? It's really God working in, in the world in the most effective way, Okay? That, 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 he, uh, that he could. And so he entrusts to Israel this covenant to be blessed, to be a blessing. And um, really, we see, you know, one way we could put this is, is talk about God's missionary heart. Okay, God has always been a God of the nations. A God who desires to reach all people. God loves diversity. We see it from the beginning with his command to go out to multiply and fill the earth, right? But when people collected around Babel, what did he do? He dispersed them and confused their language so that they would obey that original command to fill and to disperse and fill the earth. And through that, we see great diversity develop. And I, I think that something within that is that God just loves diversity. When we fast forward to Revelation, what do we see? Every tribe, every ethnicity, every language group surrounded around the throne, praising God together. So, how did Israel do with this, uh, this light-bearing mission? Not so well, right? <laughs> but um, just to, to fill that in a little bit, okay? So, God, God gave his people this command, and he had this dream for them to be a light-bearer to the nation. So, Leviticus, there's just several examples here. I'll just point out a couple. Leviticus 23:22. God speaks to him, When you gather in the harvest of your land, you must not completely harvest the corner of your field, you must not gather up the gleanings of your harvest. You must leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I'm the Lord your God. Their heart, even their, the, the instructions for practice take into account the well-being and the witness to the foreigner. A little before that, Leviticus 19, when a foreigner resides with you in, the, in your land, you must not oppress him. The foreigner who resides with you must be to you like a native citizen among you. So, you must love him as yourself because you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Wow. Over to Deuteronomy. I furthermore admonished your judges at that time that they should pay attention to issues among your fellow citizens and judge fairly, whether between one citizen and another or a citizen and a resident foreigner. They must not discriminate in judgment, but hear the lowly and the great alike. Nor should they be intimidated by human beings, for judgment belongs to God. If the matter being educated is too difficult for them, they should bring it to me for hearing. All right. So God's heart is for all nations, right? And he desires for his ways to be known through the nation of Israel. And we see that through King of Solomon, right? The, the Queen of Sheba, if you remember, comes because she hears about the wisdom and the riches and the glory. And she comes to Solomon and she's like, wow, I heard stories that wasn't even the half of it. This is amazing. We see this like, glimmer of, of God's light shining through, right? Uh, so skip ahead to the prophets. Isaiah 56.7 says, Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my temple will be known as a temple where all nations may pray. Further along in Isaiah 60, Arise, shine, for your light arrives. There are exclamation points on the, That's why I read it that way. The splendor of the Lord shines on you. For look, 
Darkness covers the earth. Deep darkness covers the nations. But the Lord shines on you. His splendor appears over you. Nations come to your light. Kings to your bright light. Wow. So from the beginning, really it wasn't just about Israel, was it? It was about God wanting to show Himself to the nations so that the nations will come to Him. God's blessing... God didn't want His people to be like a reservoir. He wanted them to be like a river. They weren't to be a reserve where where His blessing was stored up. It was something that was to flow out. So again, we're on the big picture here. But they were disobedient. And the prophets addressed this. Ezekiel 36 says, I scattered them among the nations. They were dispersed through the countries in accordance with their ways and their deeds. I judged them. So even as God's judging His people, He's working out His purposes the nations but when they came to the nations wherever they came they profaned my holy name see God is concerned about his reputation amongst the foreigners the other people groups O house of Israel that I am about to act but for the sake of my holy name it's not for your sake I'm about to act but for the sake of my holy name God says which you have profaned among the nations to which you came and I will vindicate the holiness of my great name which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned among them. Isaiah 66 says, I hate their deeds. This is verse 18. I hate their deeds, so I'm coming to gather all the nations and ethnic groups. They will come and witness my splendor. A few more Old Testament verses here. I'm just I'm cranking out some text here, okay? Hang with me. Isaiah 58. I'm going to read verses 6-12. through 12. No, this is the kind of fast that I want. I want you to remove the sinful chains, to tear away the ropes of the burdensome yoke, to set free the oppressed, and to break every burdensome yoke. I want you to share your food with the hungry and to provide shelter for homeless, oppressed people. When you see someone naked, clothe them. Don't turn your back on your own flesh and blood. Then your light will shine like the sunrise. Your restoration will quickly arrive. Your godly behavior will go before you and the Lord's splendor will be your rear guard. Then you will call out, and the Lord will respond. You will cry out, and He will reply to you, Here I am! You must remove the burdensome yoke from among you and stop pointing fingers and speaking sinfully. You must actively help the hungry and feed the oppressed. Then your light will dispel the darkness, and your darkness will be transformed into the noonday. The Lord will continually lead you. He will feed you even in your parched regions. He will give you renewed strength and you will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring that continually produces water. Your perpetual ruins will be rebuilt. You will reestablish the ancient foundations. You will be called the one who repairs broken walls and the one who makes the streets inhabitable again. Okay, so this this, uh, imagery of light kind of keeps repeating and repeating and it always has attached to it witness, witness, witness. It's something that shines out. So, back to the parable of the talents. So Jesus, this is the context, this is the history, and this is the, this is the setting that Jesus is speaking into. So what's happening here as Jesus um, comes into uh, Jerusalem is that judgment had taken place and God, there had been 400 years of silence since uh, the end of the Old Testament prophets with Zechariah. There had been silence. There had been um, kind of this, this colonial oppressive rule 
by the Romans. And um, so the religious leaders had become very um, protective, right? This protectionist policy toward uh, any outsider and around uh, God's law using the Torah and the temple as something that creates bounds. Again, like a reservoir rather than a river, right? The law became a boundary rather than a tool for light bearing. Okay, so in Matthew, early on in Matthew in chapter 9, it says, When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said, Those who are healthy don't need a physician, but those who are sick do. Go and learn what this saying means. I want mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. So they have these issues with God, with, with Jesus relating with these people who are of no reputation, right? They're adulterers, they're tax collectors, they're foreigners, they're Samaritans. People that ought not to be related with, right? Because they damage your reputation. They, we have to protect the law, the Torah, and the temple and keep it clean. So, this is, the, this is the context that as we approach Matthew 25 and Jesus tells this story that this happens is now the difficulty with reading the Gospels a lot of times is that we read, we read them as this disjointed, not even a series of stories, this disjointed, like random, it, it doesn't really matter where I fall in the Gospels, I read it and I'm like, okay, what does this mean to me, right? So they, they have no connection to us. It's almost like we, yeah, we, we, we see them as, as super random and we ima- I, I almost imagine sometimes like the, like the apostles relating with Jesus like that. And, you know, at the end of the day, they're like, okay, how, how was the teaching today? Oh, it was kind of random. Jesus, he started talking about virgins, and then he started, gave a lesson in finance, and then it was like goats and sheep. And it's just this. That's how it feels when you read Matthew 25. Parable of the ten virgins, parable of the talents, and then goats and sheep and judgment. You're like, what's the, what does this mean, you know? But when we dig in and when we are able to find uh, meaning in the place, a lot of times the, the location that these things, every time the location where these things take place have meaning. The words that are used have meaning. The, um, the tone has meaning. The time has meaning, whether it was, took place at Passover. You know, all these things kind of, when, when we kind of tune in to all these different um, aspects of the story, we see it kind of in, in 3D or HD rather than just black and white, you know, just um, mono. So I'm going to try to do that a little bit and find, find a little more meaning in this story. All right, so start off with the, the big picture, the big, the big circle. History of Israel is the, the worst history lesson you'll ever hear, but some important things are there. We're called to be light bearers, called to be a river instead of a reservoir. The law was meant to be a tool for bearing that light instead of a boundary like it became. So starting in Matthew 21, so if we just, I just want to build up to this moment where Jesus tells this story. Starting with Matthew 21, we have Jesus, what we call the triumphal entry. And this is why we gather at Easter, we have those palm branches, and everybody's like, where did these palm branches come from? Did these grow around here? What happened? Um, and we're waving them around, and people are wearing flower dresses and everything, right? And, and you talk, talk about Hosanna, 
right? Because that's what people are yelling. Jesus is riding into Jerusalem. We call it the triumphal entry, and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of King David. So there's some, some kingship that people are attaching to Jesus' identity. And they're coming in, and they're celebrating. And so Jesus comes into Jerusalem, and this is just days before his execution. It's days before the two days, the, the story of the, para, the, the parable of the talents is told two days before the Passover, which has all kinds of meaning relating back to Exodus, right? So he's, he comes into Jerusalem and the triumphal entry, and then he goes into the temple. It's still in Matthew 21, and he starts whipping, you know, he's angry. Because he says, this is meant to be a house of prayer, not, uh, not a den of robbers. So back to those Old Testament passages. A house of prayer for who? For the nations. Right? For the nations. And not a place of extortion where you have to pay, you know, all this overhead for a dove. So Jesus brings out the whip, starts turning over tables. People's money's flying everywhere. It's getting mixed up and people are frustrated. And Jesus is... He's outraged. He's outraged. After that, he curses the fig tree. He says, that's not bearing fruit. The disciples are like, whoa, he cursed the fig tree and then it died and it never bore fruit again. And he talks to them about how a tree that should be bearing fruit is not bearing fruit. It's going to be cut off. It's cursed. Then he tells this parable of the tenants. And he talks about uh, these wicked tenants who, who, who... managed a piece of land, and then when the, when the owner sent his son, they beat him, and they beat, they beat the servant, they beat the servant, they beat the son, they killed the son. And then there's the parable of the wedding feast in Matthew 22. He's saying this, this, uh, this rich man is throwing a wedding feast, and then people don't come, and so he says they're wicked and invites people from the streets. He says, come on to the party. And then he says, woe to the scribes and Pharisees, his religious leaders. And he says, you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but the inside is full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee. First clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside may be clean. That Jesus is so intense during these four or five chapters. He's coming back. He, it is the day of visit. It's the day of the Lord. His return to Zion. That Zechariah talks about. Zechariah 14. We'll get back to that. So then Jesus weeps. He weeps over the city. So he comes in. Triumphal entry. He's, he's speaking judgment. And then he weeps over the city. He laments. And he says, I so often wanted to gather you up. Like a mother chicken gathers its hens. And he's lamenting, he's mourning over this people who would not come to him. Matthew 24, he talks about the coming, coming uh, judgment. And finally we get to Matthew 25. Where he starts off with the parable of the ten virgins. And he's creating the sense of urgency and this need to be ready for the day of visitation. And then he tells the parable of the talents, which we'll come back to at the end of this chapter. It's the goats and the sheep. And it's judgment. And he's saying, if you, if you didn't take care of the poor and the marginalized in your midst, you're like goats. And you go over here and you're cast away. If you have, you are actually doing that unto me. Enter into my rest. And they're like, we didn't see you. 
We didn't know it was you. And he says, it was. Come on. So, Matthew 25. So these are the things that are happening. Jesus is in Jerusalem. He's speaking judgment. He's mourning. He's sobbing. And um, then he comes away to a private place with his disciples to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is what Zechariah refers to at the end of the Old Testament. And uh, there's judgment attached to this place. The day of visitation, which is not like a visit you <laughs> in the hospital kind of thing. The day of the Lord. Judgment is coming. And that's the, so Jesus goes to this place essentially communicating this is what this is about. Judgment. This is the day of, of visitation of the Lord upon this place. He comes away with his disciples and he starts speaking to them. And he speaks this parable, the parable of the talents. And he says this, a man was going away and he entrusted these things with his servants, which some people say was maybe a common thing for a master to entrust his property to, to his servants or bond servants and go away. But Jesus says that it was um, these talents. A talent is, is just a weight. It's a, it's a way to measure weight. Okay? In this case, talent of silver would be about 20 years worth of wages for a laborer. 20 years, one talent. So what is that? Say, let's say $25,000. What is that over 20 years? A lot. $100,000? No. I'm not even going to try right now. Um, it's a lot of money, right? And so, five talents. One guy's entrusted five talents. In other words, 100 years of wages for, for a laborer anyway. It's a lot of money. It's not, it's not so much that, that Jesus is saying... Um, it's not the specifics that Jesus is getting at. This is not an allegory. It's an analogy. The difference, like, you've read the Chronicles of Narnia before, where you read it and you're like, that's Jesus! No way! And that right there, that was like that thing, and that's like the Holy Spirit. Oh man, it's an allegory. And you can kind of do one-to-one comparison and you find things along the way that find deeper meaning and you make associations. But an analogy is different. So like when, in the Song of Solomon, when it says, you are like a a dove, or many other things. It's not set. You don't look at it and be like, oh, and, she, and the feathers are like this, and your neck is like that, and it's like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you don't, you don't do that with an analogy, right? So we're not, we're not reading the parable of the, of, the, of the talents and trying to find like this one-to-one, oh, oh, and then you're, you know, the king is, this is the master, and this is the money. No, it's not like that. Jesus is saying, the whole story, and it's not even that the, the king is not like the kingdom of God, the, or the, 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 the rich man, the talent is not like the kingdom of God. He's saying this whole scenario is like the kingdom of God. So this analogy. He, also the, um, really the, the exact, so Jesus is speaking kind of in, in hyperbole, or like exaggerated um, ways. It's not, again, it's not like the, whether or not a, a, a man would, would really give 100 years worth of wages to his, to his servant is not really the point. The point is that the thing that's entrusted is very, very valuable. Okay? That's the point. We're good. Okay. We got alarms going off on the dump truck there. All right. So we get to the specifics of the story. So one man's entrusted with five talents, one's entrusted with two, one's entrusted with one, the one with five, invests it, 
makes 100% return. That's pretty good. Yeah? And the master pretty generously says, hey man, all that return is yours. Two talents, 100% return. That's all yours. The third hides it. No returns. And he makes these statements about the, about the, the master, uh, about how cruel he is, about how harsh he is. He's motivated by fear and he hides it. So, the perception, his perception of the master is important. His perception of the investment that's entrusted is important. What's going on in his head? Maybe he's comparing, like, oh, I only got one? What the heck? I'm wasting my time with this. He got five, I got one. The story says, according to their ability, they were entrusted. He's obviously motivated by fear. He hid the talent, and he is judged severely. That's what's going on in the story that Jesus tells. Again, who's he speaking to? The disciples, privately. He's speaking in this place that represents judgment, following all these events in Jerusalem. And so he's warning them. He's warning them, saying, beware. Again, beware of the ways of this people. Beware of the ways of the scribes and Pharisees. Because what I've given as a, as a, as a means to bear light has been used for exclusivity. What I have given as a means to show my light to the nations has been used as a means to separate and to protect. And it has been used to, um, to facilitate greed and dishonesty and the neglect of the weightier things of the law, which are mercy, justice, and faithfulness, right? Not the exact measurement of cumin and dill. So Jesus is warning the disciples about the closed-off, ethnically law-driven identity that the people have developed. About the concern for the external rather than the internal. So here's a takeaway. The response to stewarding the gift of the kingdom is always active and ethical. Always active and ethical. It has bearing on the, on the way that we live. Alright, so what's Jesus doing through this story? What's Jesus doing through His whole action, through this whole series of events? He comes in to judge and says, this place is supposed to be a house of prayer. House of prayer for the nations. House of prayer for the marginalized and the oppressed. Think back to John chapter 4. You remember the lady that Jesus talks to at the well? He goes out of the way, goes through Samaria, and the disciples are like, really, Jesus, Samaria? Are you sure about that? This half-breed people? Are you sure? These traitors? And Jesus goes out in the heat of the day, and he sits at the well, and this adulterous woman comes, and he spends time with her. And she really becomes the first evangelist. She goes back and spreads the news to her whole village, and they all come to the Lord. And they say, wow, now we believe the things that you told us. That's pretty amazing. Jesus makes room and he tells this lady, she says, but your people say that we have to come to this place to worship, but I'm not welcome there. And Jesus says, the time is coming when I'll be with you anywhere. And you can worship anywhere. I'm going to make myself accessible to all people, in other words. All right, so hang with me. Hang with me here. So what's Jesus doing through this whole sequence of events? He's taking the wall that's been built and blowing it apart. And saying, this is not exclusive. This is not bounded. 
This is, so what he's doing, in other words, is reconstituting his people. With me? He's reestablishing what membership means. What his family means. It's not about ethnicity. It's not about your ability to maintain the letter of the law. It's about being a son or daughter of Abraham by faith. It's about being blessed to be a blessing. And Jesus says this is what it means to keep the law. To love God and love others. This is the weighty thing of the law. Love, justice, and faithfulness. That's what it means to keep the law. Not to keep the outside of the cup clean. Jesus is extending his family. He's redefining justification, righteousness, what it means to be righteous. He's welcoming new sons of Abraham into his family. We see that as he dies. As he dies, the earth shakes and something happens in the temple. You remember what? The curtain, the, the veil that separated the holy place was torn in which direction? From the top down. So let's think about that. What's God doing? He's opening up His presence to all people, right? He's saying, I justify you. Not your ethnicity. Not your nationality. Not your track record. Not your reputation. I justify you. And then He dies and something happens weeks later that we call Pentecost, right? Where His Spirit is made available to any person, right? And we're told in Hebrews that, he, that it's, Jesus is like an anchor and we've received a deposit of His love and faithfulness into our hearts. Romans 5.5 5 says that the Spirit pours forth the love of God in our hearts. And the Spirit's for all people, right? Regardless of our mental capacity, regardless of where we live, regardless of how we dress, regardless of our age. So Jesus is really blowing the doors off. And he does that again with, with he expresses that as, through his encounter with Saul. Saul is ethnically driven. He's frustrated because people are profaning God and this whole like opening up uh, the presence of God to all people thing. I mean, Christianity was just a, a despicable, disgusting thing to Saul. And he meets Jesus on the road, and Jesus says, you're persecuting me when you persecute these people. The scales fall away, and he realizes the family of God is really for all people, right? And Saul, who becomes the Apostle Paul, receives a calling to the Gentiles. And we see later on that when Peter, see, Peter didn't get it. Peter was all about ethnicity. And God had to, you remember there's this scene in Acts where God lowers this whole movie scene down. And he's like, all this gross insects and, and food that a good Jew would never eat. And God says, eat it. And he says, I won't. I'm a good Jew. It happens three times. He says, whatever I've called clean, you don't call unclean. There's a knock on the door. It's a Gentile saying, hey, come to my house. And Peter goes, Whoa. I guess I'm supposed to go. And he shows up and he goes, he gives this speech. Oh, you know, I'm not supposed to be here because you guys are dirty. That's really what he's saying. You guys are dirty. I'm not supposed to be here. It's not cool. But here I am because God told me to come. Like that's, that really sucks to hear. But that's where Peter was at, you know, and he was obedient. And then God comes down to dwell within these people who were unclean. And Peter goes, well, I guess that's what God wants to do. We can't stop it, right? 
Again, you guys, this might be old stuff to you. Like, yeah, we heard these stories. That's the problem. That's the problem, is that these are old stories. We need new wineskins for these stories to live within, expand our hearts, take on new meaning. Within the political climate we live in today, we have to find new meaning in these stories. What are we going to be driven by? Now I'm jumping ahead to application. So, Peter, Paul takes this seriously. Peter's struggling. Later on, come back to the story sometime, Peter uh, is not... <laughs> Peter's essentially a recovering racist. And he won't eat with the Gentiles. And Paul confronts him to his face and says, you eat with these people until the leaders from Jerusalem come. And then you, you go somewhere else. Confronts him from everybody. Bas- essentially says, you're being a racist. And Peter's like, yeah, you're right. Okay. <laughs> and he moves on. Peter's recovering. So, all right, we're listening into this. So we started big, big picture. We're zooming in. I'm basically circling around the same story. The problem is when we start with this story and we say, oh, the talents, what do we start with? It's a lesson in capitalism. Which, the thing is that that works, right? There are things that, it, that you've been entrusted with that when you hide them, you will be taken and you will have to give account to your, your gifts, your resources, your capacity. You will have to give an account for the way that you've used your life. The day is coming soon, right? There's an urgency that Jesus gives in Matthew 25. That's coming. And the thing is that that works. That lesson is, is true. But there's so much more to it when we back up and we see the big picture of what Jesus is doing It's about his kingdom and who can be part and where we find our meaning. So we're listening in to this conversation between Jesus and the disciples. What can we see? We see again the servant, his misperception of the master. What about you? Are you driven by fear? Are you closed off in what what you can do, the people you can relate with, um, the people you can associate with, partner with? in your community, whatever it might be? Are you afraid to associate with people? Are you, have you hidden the gift within your heart? Have you hidden the light? Our view of the giver dis- dictates our perspective of the gift. Think about when we give our kids gifts. Sometimes those in, they, our kids misinterpret our gifts as something that creates pressure. Does that make sense? We gave our son a microscope. We wanted to bless him. In our brokenness, we misinterpret that as pressure. Oh, the only way I can please them is to become a scientist, right? Our perception of the giver dictates the way that we see the gift. And if we're driven by fear, we won't use it, okay? We're unaware of the value of the thing that we're given to steward. Here's another misperception. We're unaware of the value, and Jesus is really getting at that. Speaking in the most extreme terms. We are lazy and passive. It's another issue. And this is what Jesus says to the servant. You, you lazy servant, cast him into the darkness. Passivity is a, um, is a serious issue. You will be held to account for your passivity. Your, your lethargy. Your Netflix and chill. Daily. You know, how do we use our time? How do we use our resources? 
Our greed and exclusion. What are the scales that need to fall away? The fear of getting it wrong. We don't take action. We don't speak up. We don't stand up because we're afraid. Well, what are my parents going to think if I actually speak out? If I speak truth to power in this situation? What's my community going to think? If I associate with these people, if I show love for these people, what's going to be thought of me? So, you guys, we, we today are stewards of the kingdom of God. It, it, the kingdom is, is here with us. It's within our hearts. We don't own it. We don't monopolize it. It's not ours. But it's within us. And the question for us today that I'm going to throw out to you is, how have you become a reservoir instead of a river? Where, where are you withholding? Where are you burying? Out of fear, out of greed, out of laziness, passivity, whatever it might be. Where are you withholding your resources, your words, your actions? Where are you missing the weightier matters of the law, as Jesus says, which are justice, mercy, and faithfulness? Where are you withholding your words, your resources, your actions in terms of the weightier matters of the law? Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. Because this is not, this is not new stuff. What we need is not necessarily something new. We need the scales to fall away in seeing what Jesus is doing in the Gospels and in this story particularly. Let's take a moment and just ask him. And we'll move on to whatever comes next. Um, got the nod. We're good on that. All right, let's take a moment and ask him. I just want to create a little space for us to reflect. And I'll lead us here. Lord, where are we withholding? What can we learn from the scribes and Pharisees Lord, that that You were speaking to and about. Where have we um, been concerned for the outside of the cup and not the inside? Where have we been passive, Lord? Where have we been driven by fear? Where are we unwilling to take risk in our lives? As a church, God, where are we unwilling? Where have we buried Where have we missed justice, mercy, and faithfulness, Lord? Lord, we ask for your mercy. I see you'll help the scales to fall away. I'm going to be quiet for a moment and just give us a chance to, um, to just listen. Lord, may we be a a faithful people. Have mercy on us, Lord. Help the scales to fall away. Help us to know what that means for us individually as families and also as a church. Help us, Lord, to to bring pleasure to your heart and to enter into your joy. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy that you're with us. Amen. 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 Amen.